Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten. Um, come down a little bit from the high of Paris last week and that brilliant win in the rain of Parc de France. The next game was Old Trafford against Chelsea, a nil-nil draw again in the rain. And the weather forecast in Manchester is for rain all week. And the league table doesn't look great, but it's still very early. Um, lots of teams have been dropping points. United have got a game in hand, but there is concern that of the three home games so far, United have only picked up one point, that one point against Chelsea. If I'm looking at positives from that, it was the first clean sheet at home in six matches. United hadn't even managed to keep a clean sheet in the first half of games, and the defence did very well. I think I put Victor Lindelof as my man of the match. Uh, the forwards were less convincing. Uh, without wanting Dan James to become a scapegoat, um, he was probably United's poorest player, and there's definitely room for improvement there, and there'll be a lot of games to come with two matches per week and it's a good job that United have got a decent sized squad people are asking about Donny van der Beek and why he's not playing truthfully I'm not that concerned about it I still think it's really early on in the season and when he did sign I wrote a huge piece for the cover of 442 and I spoke to lots of people at the club about van der Beek and, and I wasn't under the impression that he'd been brought in to be a first team star starter and I wrote a piece uh, at the time saying it's okay buying your, your Van der Beeks, but United need your Sancho class um, signings. And Van der Beek did very well at Ajax. I'm told that he's a decent lad, that he's training well. As I'm told that Cavani's training well, even Palestra's training really well. And I just think he'll get his chances. Now, if we're speaking after 15 matches and he's still not getting games, then I'd say that something's slightly amiss. But I've not heard anything whatsoever. Uh, about Donny van der Beek. I just think the manager's playing one system in the league and then he's using completely different players in the cup competitions, whether that's the League Cup or the Champions League. But actually, the people at the club saw lots of positives in the game uh, against uh, Chelsea. I'm joined today by Matt Ford. Matt is a regular contributor to United We Stand. He's from Manchester, but he's lived in Germany for the last nine years, he works as a journalist for DW.com, the German state broadcaster. He does a lot of writing uh, about football and he still goes to a huge number of Manchester United games and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. And Did you see the Chelsea game, Matt? I saw the highlights, Andy. Yeah, managed to uh, catch the highlights of that. Oh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think I was missing too much there, was I? Uh, given what I... I saw of it in, in hindsight, but I think you're right to point out um, defensively a few positives there. Good to keep a clean sheet, although I don't think, from what I saw, I don't think Chelsea also posed too much of a threat. And um, who knows, on another day with slightly better finishing up front, particularly from Rashford, um, there might even have been three points in that for United. But given the amount of games that we have coming up, like you said, um, I don't think a nil-nil against Chelsea um, can be considered the end of the world. So I spoke to people at the club about the the Chelsea game and some of the coaches and it's quite interesting that their reaction would be very different to what would be called the groundswell on social media or in the media. And there's a feeling that there was a, a bit of an overkill from the media about the game on Sunday, that two teams went into that match on the back of away games in Europe, two teams that are rebuilding. United had 
14 shots and nine corners. It's a massive improvement on last year. United had the top striker suspended. City also struggled after Europe. Uh, and there's a feeling that the Premier League is just relentless and a very tough league coming straight into it after the Champions League. And at one point was put to me that so many of the commentators or writers they just do not understand the complexities of the game and the preparation and recovery required at the levels Manchester United are playing at. There's definite confidence that the team will kick on from Wednesday, that the squad's come in together. Um, so I thought that was quite um, an interesting perspective. Uh, I speak to lots of people behind the, behind the scenes at the club and they see positives from it. I just think put into the context of another home game where United haven't won, then it puts more of a, a negative light on it. But this game's coming thick and fast. We've got Arsenal at the weekend, and we'll do a pod from Old Trafford, and we've got Istanbul next week. I, I'll be there, and Matt will be there um, as well. And are you looking forward to it, Matt? I am, yeah. Um, it's quite a spontaneous decision to go. Obviously, I think this season with the European away games, I think I, I, wrote, I wrote in the mag that normally when those draws come out for the group stage, it's, it's one of the most exciting days of the year. We're all sat there trying to work out where we could be going, how we could be getting there, who's coming, how we go in, how long we spend in there. And uh, obviously being back in the Champions League, we were never going to get like exotic trips like Kazakhstan and, uh, and Belgrade again. But, um, you know, we were, we were hoping for something good, but obviously this time it was pretty much irrelevant who we play, where we play. These games could be taking place on Mars, couldn't they, really? Um, if no one can go there you start to question the point of it a little bit, to be perfectly honest. Um, but then, obviously, Istanbul, Bashak Shehir came out as part, of that, as part of that group, and Istanbul was always a place I wanted to go. Um, I didn't go when we played Fenerbahce there the other year in the Europa League. I think that was the one game I had to miss out on. Um, so I always had it at the back of, the, back of my mind that if it, if it somehow is possible... With, with time off work and, and with, the, with the coronavirus regulations and, and travel restrictions, if somehow it's possible, then Istanbul's at the back of my mind because it's a fascinating place. I'm fascinated by the history of it, the culture of it. Um, so I just decided yesterday I'm going to go for it. So flights were booked. And flights are, flights are really cheap. I'm, I'm still having yeah, to travel yeah. for, for, for my job and I've become an expert on the various restrictions in, in different countries. And there's a lot fewer flights, so it's becoming more problematic. But a lot of the flights are really cheap, and it's not been that problematic from Germany. I think, I mean, historically and socially speaking, Germany has always had a very, very close relationship with Turkey, uh, dating back to all the guest workers who arrived in the fifties and sixties as part of sort of Germany's rebuild after the Second World War. So there's always been a very uh, historically close ties to Turkey. So. When I was looking at the flights, I think there's about there's two or three flights a day from around where I am, so around Cologne, Dusseldorf, and Western Germany, and it's worked out about hundred euros return. So um, can't really can't really complain about that. And um, apparently, I've spoken to a few people who were in Istanbul and a few Turkish colleagues as well, and they've said that it's it's okay to get a test when you leave Turkey. That that's what you have to do, and you can do that at the airport when you leave. So fingers crossed it. It's, it seems like it's uh, like it's a goer. <laughs> yeah, and there's another reason it's it's very cheap is that um, the Turkish lira has crashed, so the pounds performed pretty poorly against 
virtually every currency in the world. But yeah, I was, he- I was hearing that from a colleague. Yeah, saying if you want, if you go there spending spending pounds or euros, you can get a few good deals. So um, fingers crossed, it uh, should be an interesting shift, especially given the uh, yeah, the more the more general situation. I think I think people can probably understand just everyone needs to get away from time to time and um, I think no matter what no matter what you do or what sort of walk of life you're in uh, coronavirus has had an effect whether directly or indirectly on, on everyone and uh, so I'm yeah looking forward to a spontaneous little chip away Istanbul's a brilliant city I spoke to Raphael yesterday he's obviously playing there for United's opponents and a lot of top players have gone there, maybe not at their absolute peak, but around the age of, of 30. And traditionally, you've had these huge clubs in Galatasaray and, and Fenerbahce, and then uh, Besiktas as well. And they've rebuilt yeah. the stadium overlooking the, the Bosphorus. And now we've got the new Istanbul team, which is owned owned by Erdogan. Is that right, Matt? Um, owned? I don't, I don't think they're owned by Erdogan. However, the, uh, the links to... Uh, President Erdogan's uh, party uh, are pretty indisputable. There are familial connections at the club. I was writing a lot about them um, earlier this earlier this year, actually, because I actually thought United would be playing them in the Europa League. Um, they were knocked out of the Europa League by Copenhagen. Then Copenhagen came from behind, so sort of anticipating that we could be playing Bashak Shahir in, uh, in in Cologne in the Europa. I did a lot. Uh, I did quite a big piece. On them, uh, spoke to a few people um, in, uh, in in Turkey. Spoke to some Istanbul Başakşehir fans as well. There's not many of them, so getting hold of one wasn't that easy. Um, about who they are, and it, it's an interesting story. They are they do have these connections to Erdogan. They're also a, a brand new club, and they've managed to upset the elite in Istanbul. I think most of the last thirty or so Turkish titles have been won by Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, or Besiktas. Um, but the three clubs are drowning in debt, um, and they, from what I heard, they they tend to bow to this obscene amount of pressure on social media, which is absolutely massive in in Turkey, and uh, they bow to these demands to buy expensive European players, um, which then puts them into even further debt. But the presidents have to keep doing that to to ensure they get elected at the next club elections. Um, so Istanbul Başak Şehir have just been like this, uh, almost like a, a test tube club just formed on the outskirts of the city, uh, yeah, with with political and industrial backing, um, but also on a, on a from a footballing point of view, seem to have gone about it a lot more professionally, uh, which has allowed them they, that allowed them to win the league last year in Turkey. So it's a bit of a turn up for the books in a sporting sense, but also in a in a social sense in Istanbul, from what I understand. It's mad this idea of big football clubs bowing to pressure to sign players from social media. And I, Fancy I, that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, we've seen it with, with United, but I saw it with Barcelona. I'm convinced yeah, yeah. that in January of this year, Barca were top of the league, they'd, they'd reached the group stage of the Champions League, they were playing well. But according to fans on social media, uh, this wasn't a classic Barca team and Ernesto Valverde, the coach, was at fault. This was a coach who was really popular with the players and they sacked him and the players were furious. They were absolutely yeah. furious. He's a, he's a brilliant coach. And they're saying, yeah, but we shouldn't have lost. 
um, against Roma and Liverpool, of course you shouldn't, but football teams do do lose matches. And it just shows how some of the, the super clubs, and I'd include United in that, they're almost caught in two fan bases. And yeah. one of them is, is permanently angry and you know, only um, quietened when, when the team win well. The rest of the time, they're absolutely furious because you've got these young Barca fans who were attracted when Barca were, were the best team in the world under Guardiola. But that's not normal. And I, I speak to older Barca fans who say, we won one league title between 1974 and 1991. What Guardiola did just isn't normal. And people shouldn't yeah. expect yeah. it to, to, to be normal. So it's, it's a mad one. With Istanbul, I mean... I'll probably do more of this next week. My first trip there in '93 resulted in getting locked up and deported along with 164 other United fans for doing absolutely nothing wrong ahead of Galatasaray <laughs> against United. But I've been back many well, times. Well, at, at least this time there won't be 164 of us. There'll be about, what, one, two? Is, I don't know, is anyone else going? Yeah, a couple. There's a couple <laughs> going. <laughs> um, I mean, well, hopefully we don't. Hopefully we don't get locked up. Yeah, hopefully. I, I did get told a year after uh, when I went back there from a Turkish journalist, and this was in the days before social media, so I'm sure it would be much, much worse. I did get told you are public number enemy number one in Turkey at the moment, Mister Mitten, and that's because right. I'd written the truth about what had happened to me in nineteen in ninety three. But I've been back there loads of times, and I've got I know loads of Turkish people, and uh, I really like. Um, Istanbul as a city I love watching football there under normal circumstances I think the atmosphere is incredible it's a great place to go as an away fan the troubles died down now I mean you can't act up when you go to Turkey because it's going to come on top for you and I think the United fans who have been back to Fenerbahce Besiktas um, not only have absolutely loved the atmosphere but you just know you've got to behave yourself and Bursa Sport in 2010 that was amazing brilliant and this is like the fourth biggest city in Turkey and we got a great welcome and it was another example of how going to European games is so much more than just watching the match even though United usually won. The last time I think was 2016 I think you referenced it before Fenerbahce United lost the game. Yeah. I yeah. spoke to Morgan Schneidlin about that recently and he, I think he saw that as one of the nails in his Manchester United career because it was, a, it was a really bad night. Fenerbahce scored two, two wonder goals. And then we're going back, but it's not going to be normal, and you can't pretend with no fans. It loses 50% of the attraction for me going to Turkey. Because it's Although, really like I said, this Istanbul, Basaksehir, here, they only actually play in front of about two, 3,000 maximum anyway. I'm sure um, they'd sell it. For, <laughs> I'm sure Manchester United in the Champions League they would dead sell out. What they've got a new stadium? It holds twenty thousand. They do, although I, I, honestly, Andy, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too sure. Um, even last season in the Europa League, they had Borussia Mönchengladbach in the group, for example. Um, they, they have played some fairly big teams, but the support is not there. And from what I heard from people, you, I mean, when when a, when a Turkish champion is crowned, generally when it's Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, or, or Besiktas or someone. The whole city comes to a standstill. It's just absolute carnage. Everyone out celebrating in the streets. They said that when Bashak Shahir won it last year, you wouldn't have known. Um, this really is a quite niche, um, a, a niche modern club 
that exists in a in a quite conservative Erdogan political milieu on the edge of town. I really don't. I, even against United, I wonder if it would have been sold out. We won't get to find out. And as you say, it's on the outskirts of the city. The new airport's 50 kilometres away from Taksim Square and um, the, the ground is like 20 kilometres away. So we're talking about uh, Rochdale or Wigan equivalent um, to, to Manchester. But something you said earlier about almost wanting them to win when they played Copenhagen um, in, in July, August. It's quite interesting as a journalist because I really wanted Copenhagen to win that game purely right, for work yeah. purposes mm-hmm. because I knew if they won... Well, we both knew they'd play Manchester United in Cologne. Yeah. And I knew if Copenhagen went through, I'd get an exclusive with their manager, Solbakken, and I knew he was yeah. an interesting guy. And I couldn't have really justify doing him unless he was playing a big English team. So I was yeah. buzzing when no, Copenhagen fair, won. Fair, fair enough. I'm glad it worked out for you, Andy. Um, I think the only uh, the only thing I had planned with Bashakcha here was that, like I said, these connections between uh, between Germany and Turkey. I know I know we bumped into a couple of uh, Copenhagen fans in Cologne anyway. Yeah, they were sound. Um, they were great. They, they I were was wondering fans. if there might have been a few uh, a few local local Turks in uh, in Cologne who might have had a few interesting views on that game, but it didn't come to pass. And you got uh, you got your interview. So well done, well done for that. Well, you've got your bite of the cherry now because we're playing Istanbul. But it sounds like a slightly artificial construct, this team. And that moves us on to the main talking point today, which is Red Bull Leipzig. It's United's opponents in the first game of this season's Champions League at Old Trafford. You know far more about this club than I do. All I know is that they're top of the Bundesliga. I know a little bit about Leipzig. I've never been there. Interestingly, the biggest crowd my brother ever played in front of was in Leipzig against Lokomotiv for FC yes. United in a friendly yes. game. And I think there were 7,000 uh, yeah. pe- pe- people there. And you've written a lot about Red Bull. Uh, I watched them a bit uh, in, the, in the Champions League. And from a footballing perspective, I can see that they're doing a lot of things right. But just tell us for people who don't know the story of how this club came about, because Leipzig's one of the biggest cities in Germany, but they didn't really have a, a top-flight club yeah. post-reunification. Just talk us through yeah. how this club came about to being top of the Bundesliga at the moment, playing to 40,000 crowds in a, in a brand-new stadium, but with half of Germany hating them, if I, if I understand that rightly. Yeah. No, you, you're right to point out that Leipzig is a is in itself a very big. It's a big footballing city. The uh, the German FA was actually founded in Leipzig in 1900. The first ever German champions came from Leipzig in 1903. That was uh, VfB Leipzig, who are now known as Lokomotiv Leipzig. Um, and throughout the period of East Germany. So from 1945 to, to 1990, um, East Germany produced some pretty big teams. Uh, so did Leipzig. Lokomotiv were a regular in European competition. Um, some of yeah, slightly older listeners might remember Lokomotiv getting to the European Cup winners final in 1987. So there was no, um, there's no shortage of footballing history and footballing heritage in the city of Leipzig. The city actually holds a record for a German attendance at any German game, uh, over 100,000 turned up for a derby uh, back in 1950 or, or 51. Um, and 
if any United fans are actually going to this to the to this game or when when we play over there in uh, in, in December, people would, you'd notice that the uh, what is now the Red Bull Arena uh, is actually built inside the bowl of the old uh, Central Stadium, and you can still see the old terraces. So it's like, it, it, like I said, there's no shortage of history and tradition, but uh, given that a lot of uh, or pretty much every East German club collapsed economically following the unification because they just couldn't compete with uh, the, the, the the free market capitalist system uh, of, of West German football. Uh, a lot of them all went bust, including the two the two big Leipzig teams, uh, Lokomotiv and their local rivals, Chemi Leipzig. Um, and those two clubs uh, are now playing in Division 4, which meant that in 2000 and Seven, eight, nine. When um, Red Bull, so they're an, they're an Austrian energy energy drink manufacturer. Uh, they already had a team in Salzburg, Red, Red Bull Salzburg, um, which has its own controversial story behind it. Yeah, they were looking to expand their franchise, so their system of franchise clubs into into Germany, into the Bundesliga, and they yeah they were looking around for a location to either take over or just create a new club. Uh, they investigated Dusseldorf, they investigated 1860 Munich, they investigated San Pauli, believe it or not, um, and eventually settled on the city of Leipzig because it was, yeah, like I said, a, a big footballing city with a modern stadium which had been built for the World Cup in 2006, um, but it didn't have a Bundesliga team. Um, they did try and take over... Uh, Chemie Leipzig and they did inquire at Lokomotiv Leipzig but they were told no, not interested um, and eventually settled on a, a team just outside of Leipzig uh, in a suburb called Makranstedt, uh, they were a Division 5 team and they uh, they took over their playing licence for, for Division 5 and uh, started with a brand new team called uh, not Red Bull Leipzig they, they had to they, they weren't allowed to, to use a sponsor name uh, in the name of the club, so they uh, they made up a word, uh, Rasenballsport, which translates roughly as lawn ball sport, but it's, it's, a, it's a nonsense word. Um, and yeah, that was in 2009, and since then, yeah, by 2016, they were they were in the Bundesliga. Um, as you can imagine, they they outspent their their rivals at, at every level, breaking transfer records and and all sorts on their way up. Um, and they've continued to, yeah, contrary to popular belief, they've continued to spend pretty big in the Bundesliga as well. Um, so that's uh, that's the brief sort of chronology of, of where they've where they've come from. Um, you mentioned that they are that they are unpopular. Um, yeah, it's it's quoted quite a lot, like the the, the idea of the most hated team in Germany. Um, but I think to, it it's not sort of just a simple hate if you if you want that the, the other fans have of them um based purely on on jealousy or this is just some this is just some new upstart i think to understand it you really have to understand the context of german football and german fan culture into which red bull have like parachuted themselves um and that's what makes them really unpopular um a lot of listeners may have heard of the the 50 plus 1 ownership rule in, uh, in in German football, um, and if people aren't aware, it's the uh, yeah ownership regulation which uh, 
stipulates that 50% of the shares at any Bundesliga club um, must belong to the club itself, i.e. the members, i.e. the fans, plus one share. That, in, that ensures that the members always have, at least theoretically speaking uh, and legally speaking, uh, a, a majority and prevents uh, takeovers from, from external investors. So situations like uh, the Glazers in 2005, for example, um, are theoretically uh, not possible in, uh, in Germany. And um, that regulation, that is actually what's very much at the base and at the foundation of, of what many people will associate with German football and German fan culture. So the idea of uh, standing terraces, having a beer on the terrace, um, cheap tickets, um, great atmospheres, uh, a lively fan culture. These are all a result of this idea that the clubs belong to the fans. Um, and like I said, they, legally speaking, and theoretically do. Um, so this is why that, that rule, that regulation is so integral to, to German football and it produces so much of what we admire about it. But um, when Red Bull took over the playing licence at Mackenstedt and created... RB Leipzig in 2009, um, they had no interest in um, in any in any fans or supporters actually having a say, because the purpose of the club is not to deliver any of that. The purpose of the club was, remains, and will always be primarily to uh, to act as a marketing vehicle for this energy drink brand. Um, so they managed to get around the rule by. Allowing the club to be controlled by members, but there were only 17 members and they were all either employed by or connected to Red Bull. I think there's now 19 members, so they've actually improved on that point in, in the past couple of years. But yeah, so that that's the sort of fundamental um, ideological issue that supporters in Germany have with, 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 with RB Leipzig. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Cheers for the explanation. Do you drink Red Bull yourself? I don't, no. Um, I actually used to. Um, as a kid coming home, I used to, I used to pick up a can from um, from the petrol station on the way back from school sometimes if I had some of my lunch money left over. Um, I don't know. I think, I think at the time, when we were little, I think we thought it was alcoholic. But that probably says more about us as kids than it does about anything else. My brother used to neck, neck a can before playing football, usually because he'd, he'd, he'd had too much to drink the night before. So yeah. he always <laughs> took it in his kit bag and he'd just wacky pack for energy. Yeah. I think he had another one at half-time. It's probably yeah. a dangerous thing to do, but... It's not just these cans of pop, um, you know what I mean? It's Red Bull isn't just that, is it? We all know what Red Bull as a brand stands for. It's more of a... I tend to think of it more so as a lifestyle brand, um, obviously, they're in Formula One, they're in extreme sports, they're in all this sort of stuff. Um, they sent that sent that bloke up to space, didn't they? And he, he parachuted down. Um, they're into this. Yeah, it's the idea of this brand, um, this idea of pushing, pushing, you know, pushing limits, uh, going faster and higher and further than than, than ever before. Um, and I suppose, I suppose that's how they see that's how they see the progression of this football team of theirs throughout the German pyramid, um, shaking everything up and breaking boundaries, and uh, to hell with with anybody who might have a problem with that. Where are the fans from? Because if they're selling forty thousand out, yeah. uh, are these new football fans who've been attracted to 
a safe family environment. There are hooligan issues in Leipzig. Is this the antithesis of that? Is this club saying, you know, it's a big city, there's enough people here, we can see that there's a demographic of people who want to watch football, who for whatever reason are not watching football, and we'll go and watch this, this fantastic young team play? That's definitely part of it. Um, like I said, there was a there was a vacuum in terms of top professional football in two thousand and nine, in 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 Leipzig, and similar to a lot of areas across the former East Germany, there were problems with, yeah, uh, economic depression, uh, unemployment, social problems, uh, issues which inevitably lead to um, right wing attitudes. Um, even quite extreme right attitudes, and that manifested itself on the terraces of football clubs, not just in Leipzig, but also but across areas of, of Eastern Germany. But particularly, but particularly in, in Leipzig, there were there were issues with that. And obviously, as these teams fell down the leagues, uh, the attendances also shrunk, and you had a situation where, at the time, at both clubs actually at the well, at Chevy Leipzig or their, their predecessor, uh, and also at Lokomotive and at their, their predecessor club. Um, yeah, you had issues of right-wing hooliganism. Um, and yeah, you can see from that point of view that it probably wasn't the most, they probably weren't the most attractive places to, to take a family and take your kids to watch football. Must emphasise that that's actually not, that's not really the case these days. Um, both clubs have changed a lot. But yeah, Red Bull certainly um, recognised that, that there was potential. And as for the people who watch them now, like I said, they do pretty much sell out. Uh, not always, but they do pretty much sell out their, their Bundesliga games under normal circumstances. It's a mixture. Yeah, you do get a lot of families um, and the club like to play on that. They do quite actively like to play on this idea that we offer family-friendly football, as if that's not available anywhere else in Germany, which is a bit of a strange one. Um you get a you do you get a lot of people from what I, from what I gather. And I, I talk to a lot of people in Leipzig who who come from outside of town. Um, they've spread their net pretty wide and uh, tried to sell themselves a little bit as a club for the entire region, um, even as a club for the, the club for the whole of the whole of Eastern Germany, um, which is also a bit problematic given that the biggest well the biggest club in Eastern Germany is probably Dynamo Dresden. Um, they're also now in Division Three. Um, so yeah, you, you do get that. Uh, you get uh, no, so, yeah. So they they have they have spread their net quite wide to sort of sell themselves as a as a club for the for the whole the whole region, which doesn't necessarily be true given that uh, the biggest club in Eastern Germany is probably Dynamo Dresden, now in Division Three. Um, but you, you do get all sorts. You get you get fans watching them who used to watch either Chevy Leipzig or Lokomotiv Leipzig, but have decided they just want to watch Bundesliga football. You get a lot of people who used to be Bayern Munich fans or Borussia Dortmund fans, um, but now they have a Bundesliga club to watch in their own in their own town, so they go and watch that. Um, I actually went I went to a game uh, in their first season the Bundesliga, and I thought if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do a game at, at RB Leipzig, I'll do it properly. So I went to their home game against Hoffenheim, which uh, people might be aware of another another club who uh, who have had controversial issues with the idea of being a bit plastic. So I thought, right, I'll watch the two of them. And um, I was speaking to fans, first of all, in a, in a, in a pub um, near the ground. And it turned out to be Red Bull Leipzig Ultras, which is also a bit of a contradiction in terms, given that um, 
ultras, particularly in Germany, they pride themselves on their independence and their sense of community, none of which can theoretically exist at a club like Red Bull, which doesn't allow for them. And I asked them, so well, they're all quite young lads, and I said, well, where are you? Who did you watch a couple of years ago when you didn't have this team? And they said, oh, I used to watch Lokomotive, or I used to watch Chemie Leipzig, or someone said, oh, I'm a Bayern fan. And I went, like, what, still? And he went, yeah, yeah. And then it turns out he actually stood on the uh, on the on the south stand in Munich with Bayern Bayern Munich's ultras, and I thought right, so you sat here with your little mob here, and you've got but you also watch Bayern. It's like, do the lads here know that you watch Bayern? And they all went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and that's not a problem. I like, okay, and then do the lads in Munich know that you watch this lot? And they went, no, 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 they don't know that. Um, I thought, okay, so it, it it does seem a little bit confused at times. Um, that ultra group actually disbanded earlier this year when they, they realised that they were sort of backing a loser at trying to be ultras at, at a club like Red Bull, which fundamentally can't really allow anyone else to have a say. Um, so, yeah, that you do get that mixture. Um, and, I mean, one thing that can't be denied is that the football is actually good to watch. That's, that's not really uh, up for That's not really up for debate. They do play good football. It's just a question of, how they're in a position to play that football and the purpose for which they play that football. That's the fundamental issue behind it. So there's an interview with The Athletic and this podcast is brought to you in association with The Athletic. Uh, Raphael Honigstein has spoken to Marcel Sabitzer, who's the captain of RB Leipzig. He scored the winning goal against Herfra on Saturday, which helped them stay um, top of the the Bundesliga. And they have had some... Really good players like Timo Werner in recent years. And I'm going to do some United-related interviews for The Athletic uh, this week. We've got a special offer for listeners of this podcast. And it's £1 per month, which is a huge reduction. And that's for the first six months. You can cancel it at any time. Please use this link. Go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash United We Stand. That's an offer for new subscribers and if you support it and you link to it, then we'll be able to carry on doing these podcasts. And if you don't, then we won't. It's pretty simple. Uh, we don't really like the idea of, of charging um, for, for this podcast. But there's a really good interview there with um, Red Bull Leipzig's uh, captain. And they'll obviously get a lot more attention um, playing against Manchester United, although they got a lot in the Champions League uh, last year under their coach, um, Julian Nagelsmann, who, like Thomas Tuchel, is one of the, the young, um, I'd say up-and-coming, but he's already established working at a very high level, sort of multilingual, highly talented um, German coaches. Is that fair, Matt? Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, just quickly, I want to come back on Marcel Sabitzer. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, and uh, I'll, I must have, a, must have a read of that piece. Marcel Sabitzer is uh, one of, I think, 18 or 19 Red Bull Leipzig players who have come from Red Bull Salzburg, um, and this is one of yeah another one of the issues that that people have with them that they uh, they over the course of the years have managed to form these teams uh, with players from Salzburg and therefore benefited from a, a system of farm teams effectively, which nobody else benefits from. Um, that has a financial advantage for Red Bull. They managed to you know they. They can get players from their sister team in Salzburg at more favourable prices. But also, probably more importantly, they can get 
players from Salzburg who they know will not be a risk. Players who come from Red Bull Salzburg tend to have come through the same system, playing this with the same philosophy, the same style, same tactics. They know that a player from Salzburg won't be a risk. They know that it'll, they'll fit directly into this uh, the style of football they play in Leipzig as well, um, which is also seen as yeah, it's seen as an unfair advantage that they have over over other teams who don't have those systems. And uh, Sabitzer in particular was quite an interesting case. He was uh, um, before he joined Red Bull Salzburg. He was playing for Rapid Vienna uh, in the Austrian Bundesliga, um, and he had a clause in his contract at Rapid Vienna which prevented him from moving to a, directly to an Austrian rival, i.e., Red Bull Salzburg. So when Red Bull Salzburg came knocking and wanted to sign him, they obviously they, they couldn't. So effectively, Red Bull Leipzig bought him and then immediately loaned him to Salzburg. So that he could then gather some more uh, more game time in Salzburg for a year before then being moved back to Leipzig, where he's been since. And he's now the captain. So it's quite an in- yeah. That's I think it's quite an interesting case in point as to precisely how how this how this club and the system of teams operate in, in Germany and, and around Europe. Um, Julian Nagelsmann, like you said, yeah, a very impressive young coach. Um, made his mark at Hoffenheim. A few years ago, when he, he rescued them from relegation, and then a couple of years later, had led them into Europe and into the Champions League for the first time. Um, and he did that under the tutelage of uh, sporting director Ralf Ranić, who might be a, a name who's who's who be uh, familiar to, to to some people listening, um, known as a bit of a professor in German football, um, often considered a bit of a mastermind behind this sort of this quite typically modern German style of football with um, quite high aggressive pressing, quick transitions, quick quick counter-attacks, the style of football that Red Bull Leipzig uh, have, have been known for, uh, at, at, least in, at least in previous years. And um, yeah, when Ralph Ranić uh, took up several roles at Red Bull, uh, he was coach for a time, he was sporting director for a time, he was head of global soccer at Red Bull generally for a time, he's had, he's had all sorts of positions. Uh, he then quite yeah quite predictably I suppose headhunted Julian Nagelsmann as the sort of coach who he'd uh, he'd like to see at, uh, at, at RB Leipzig, and uh, I, I think it's interesting to see how both the sporting director Ralf Ranić and the coach Julian Nagelsmann have both prospered at Hoffenheim and at Red Bull, so i.e. at modern perhaps test tube clubs um, who are not traditional giants um, they don't neither of them adhere to the 50 plus 1 rule um, either on paper or, or theoretically in Leipzig's case um, but that means that the sporting the, the sporting people at the clubs they they have a lot less bureaucracy to deal with essentially um, whereas there might be all sorts of committees and panels and boards and elected elements at, at, at big traditional clubs like Schalke or Borussia Dortmund or Köln. These elements don't exist at a Hoffenheim or a Red Bull. 
Um, the clubs are very much run along streamlined corporate structures, which makes decision-making and sporting decision-making very easy. So it's very easy for the likes of Ralph Grandier. Not very easy, it's, it's easier. I'm not, I'm not taking away from the work he's done. It's easier for, for people like him and Nagelsmann to to install this the, the, the system of football that they want, backed by yeah, backed by corporate money, backed by corporate decision-making structures, and backed by a unique system of farm teams. So it's, there is a reason, I think, as to why both uh, both men have prospered, uh, prospered at both Hoffenheim and, and RB Leipzig. Um, but on the pure face of it, purely sporting-wise... Um, you have to say it's worked, um, no matter what the, the controversial ways are that, that, that they've managed to get there in the first place. Um, Nagelsmann was brought in, uh, he was brought to, to, to Red Bull Leipzig um, and with, with the aim of sort of weaning them off this idea of just pure counter-attacking football all the time. I think when they first arrived in the Bundesliga in 2016-17, they always took the league by storm with that type of football. They were playing in a 4-2-2-2 system and just hitting teams on the counter-attack. It was it was pretty formidable. But then when they qualified for Europe uh, the season after, it became qu- uh, clear quite quickly that that, that high-energy game, couldn't really you couldn't really keep it up across several competitions across the whole season. So they've had to move away from that slightly and uh, add a few more strings to their bow and play a bit uh, a slightly more possession-based game as well. And that's what Julian Nagelsmann's been trying to do and he's been particularly impressive in that towards the end of last season. People will remember the way they tore Tottenham apart, the way they beat Atletico Madrid uh, last year. Um, and they've continued in that vein this season. Uh, they've had a relatively favourable start in the Bundesliga if they played Mainz, Leverkusen, Schalke, Augsburg, Hertha Berlin, um, but you know they've they've been pretty, they've been they've been impressive. They've not had any slip ups. Um, United is probably on several levels the yeah the the big the biggest challenge that they've had this season. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Nagelsmann goes about it. Right, thank you for your time, Matt. As you said, um, Leipzig. RB Leipzig eliminated Tottenham and Atletico Madrid last year before losing in the Champions League semi-final against Paris Saint-Germain. And Sabitzer says about the United game, I haven't seen Manchester United play this season, but the results suggest they blow a little hot and cold at the moment. They have big names and plenty of quality and will be the underdogs there. But they would have watched us in the Champions League and seen that it's not easy against us. We can compete with any side. Our intention is to beat them, but we need to put in a top performance. So I'm going to go and speak to both managers now in the pre-match uh, press conference. Look forward to the game at Old Trafford. If not, another shell of a stadium because no fans are allowed. It continues uh, to frustrate. And we will bring you the next podcast uh, after this one from the Arsenal game at Old Trafford at the weekend. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>